Welcome to Camp 8. This is Eli Sagor, back again with Kyle Gill. How you doing, Kyle? I'm doing pretty well, Eli. How have you been? I've been pretty good. We're still adjusting to, to COVID and, and different patterns of working and so on, but things are going well. Have you all been getting any rain down there in the Twin Cities? Yeah, we have. I, I was just doing a siding project trying to fix a, a leak uh, coming into the exterior wall of our house. Found a mouse hole there uh, up on my roof. Uh, against a side wall, and uh, so I had a little bit of an adventure yesterday, and and uh, ended up just getting it all patched in. The last piece of siding put back on uh, about three or four minutes before the skies opened up last night. So I I uh, felt a little bit fortunate, just just by the skin of my teeth, got it closed up again before the rain. What's nice. new? Uh, what's new up in in Cloquet? Well, I asked about the rain because we've been ridiculously dry yeah, up here. Um, I just looked at our weather data um, and saw that we've had less than an inch and a half since the beginning of May. So we planted, our planting is done, and we've measured our seedlings, which are alive at the moment. But it's, uh, I guess that's why they call us a fire-dependent forest, because every once in a while we're going to get these super droughty periods. Yeah. And, um, won't be great for the seedlings, but... We'll, uh, we'll see what makes it through. Um, the other thing that's been really on my, my mind this week is continued thinking about race relations and stuff that we mentioned on the podcast last time, but it's also Pride Month. And that's right. Uh, yes. Being, being a forester who happens to be gay is, uh, something that's part of my tapestry. And it's, I always run through my head. Does it matter? Does it not matter? And, uh, on the one hand, it does because it influences how I view the world and, uh, my background. And on the other, it doesn't. So yesterday it was kind of funny. I did a search for, Gay Forester, because I was just curious, like, is there anybody else that identifies themselves as gay Forester? What do you expect came up on my Not Google much. search? A bunch of forums for uh, Subaru Forester. Groups. Oh, of course. Yes. <laughs> so there's, uh, that was, that was kind of funny. Uh, funny part of my day yesterday as I was thinking about Pride Month and thinking about whether or not it matters to how I view the world. And it does. Um, and it doesn't all at the same time. Yeah. But it's, I think it's part of the diversity of our uh, of our forestry community, and um, I'm proud to be a gay man. I'm proud to be a forester, and um, it hasn't always been the case. Uh, and so it's it's nice to be able to um, not feel like I can't say that. Yeah. So um, that's been on my mind too during Pride Month. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, Kyle, you know it, it's it's hard for us to all parse how why we think the way we do, why we see the world the way we do. Uh, and that, that tapestry, that, that diversity that we all bring from our own life experience and the cultures that we inherit and learn and pick up along the way is a part, a big part of the topic of our conversation this week. I had a really fun conversation with Mike Dockery. Mike is a new, fa- relatively new faculty member at the University of Minnesota Department of Forest Resources. And I've gotten to know Mike a little bit over the last year since he joined our faculty. Uh, and we had a good conversation about indigenous models of sustainability. Mike is a, member of the Potawatomi Nation, and um, his research is very focused on uh, indigenous models of sustainability, and that's what we talked about. And and as we think about that, you know, the the conversation for me brought up a a number of assumptions that I realize are kind of embedded in the way that I see the world. Um, and, And to hear Mike talking from a different culture and representing the views of a different culture really is fascinating to me. And, and I think that what listeners are going to hear in the conversation that we'll play shortly is, um, I, I think can inform the way that we all do our work, whether we're working on tribal lands or 
or not, and we'll get into some of the complexity of what is and is not yeah. tribal land is, during is the Is there such a thing as non-tribal land, well, Eli? Right, right. And it's keep it, listening, and we'll find out. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> From Mike coming right up on Camp Eight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, why don't we get to that, Kyle? Um, yeah. Why don't we uh, Why don't we go to the interview with Mike Dockery? Welcome back to Camp Eight. This is Eli Sagor, and I'm uh, here today with Mike Dockery. Mike is a faculty member. His office is right next door to mine when we're allowed to be in Green Hall. Uh, Mike, uh, welcome to Camp 8. Uh, Bozo, Eli, nice to be here. Thanks for uh, having me on your podcast. It's exciting to uh, see all the great stuff that you're pulling together from uh, Camp 8 for these podcasts. Oh, thanks for the kind words. It's really good to have you here. Uh, So, Mike, you're a faculty member in the University of Minnesota's Department of Forest Resources. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about your background? Sure. I, uh, I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I'm a member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation, and our traditional territories uh, are around the southern part of Lake Michigan. So both sides, my family um, on that side was really from kind of the southern Michigan there uh, into Indiana. And our tribe was removed in the 1830s, uh, as many tribes were, to west of the Mississippi. First, we were removed to Kansas, and then to Oklahoma, where we have our reservation and tribal government today. Uh, I've worked in forestry for over 20 years, had kind of a diverse, um, diverse experiences through forest management. Uh, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in uh, South America, in Bolivia, for many years, working on community um, natural resource management and environmental education. I worked for the United Tribe as an intern in their planning department. That was great. That set me up for doing planning with the U.S. Forest Service uh, for several years on the Green Mountain and Finger Lakes National Forests. Then I started working uh, with the Forest Service's partnership with the College of Menominee Nation. Um, and I did that about eight or nine years. And, and through that, we really took that land-grant university status that the tribal colleges have to heart, where we worked on research, education, and outreach around sustainable forestry and sustainable forestry forest products based on the hundreds of years of Menominee experience with forest management. And then most recently, I I came to Minnesota and I took a position within the Forest Service and the research uh, department. And recently, actually just uh, not even a year ago, uh, just under a year, took a position with the faculty position that you mentioned uh, here at the University of Minnesota. And one of my main goals for, for becoming faculty was really to make sure that our students and our future foresters and natural resource managers have the tools and the understanding of tribal natural resource management that they need in order to do their jobs in the 21st century. You know, all these lands were tribal lands at one point. Many of our lands that we manage have treaty resource rights um, that are there, the public lands Um, And any job that we have in natural resources in the whole country, but particularly here in the Great Lakes region, you have to know about tribal management, tribal goals, tribal histories, uh, and treaty rights. And so I really want to infuse the curriculum with those things to make sure that our students um, have all the tools they need to successfully and sustainably manage our resources for everyone. 
That sounds really good. I know that uh, for me personally, I've been, uh, I've had some eye-opening experiences. We had Joseph Bauer Kemper from UMD give a really good webinar a year ago about tribal treaty rights. And I admit that uh, I learned an awful lot from that talk, which I think was just a, a very basic overview. And likewise, through our conversations, Mike, and, and presentations that I've seen you give, um, I, I, I think that the, the ideas that you have conveyed uh, really are important and are, are very often overlooked um, or, or not well understood. So I think it's going to serve our students well to have you um, bringing that knowledge and, and exposing them to some of that um, uh, to, to some of that. And Mike, the, talk, the topic that we're going to focus most of our conversation on today is um, indigenous models of sustainability. We've been, um, you've published some work on that topic and we have, um, uh, you, you gave a really good seminar on campus, I guess a little more than a year ago, um, about that. And I wonder if we might just uh, start with, with uh, start with the basics. What can you tell us about tribal natural resources? You just said that all of these lands were at one time Indian lands. The nature of land ownership and, and the pattern of land ownership has changed tremendously over the last uh, few hundred years. So when you talk about tribal natural resources, what do you have in mind? I have a couple things in mind when I think about tribal natural resource management. And you hit on the first one that I already mentioned, that all these lands were tribal lands at one point, and that our tribes have hundreds of years, generations of knowledge around these lands and changes that have happened through that time. You know, I worked with the Menominee tribe for many years. They have understandings of the landscape from when the glaciers receded. They have stories that tell them about how that land is and was and will be in the future. And those insights to that land base that, again, they've been here a lot longer than the United States has been a country, right. uh, really can help us through the changes uh, that we're experiencing now. So there's that. There's also the idea that um, tribal uh, natural resources or these are forest lands, you know, the tribe's voices have been neglected. And so giving a base of, you know, what is tribal natural resources is really a foundation from which to start these discussions to have more equitable and sustainable um, natural resource management. So tribes have their own lands. Tribes have um, reservations. The land tenure sort of ownership patterns of tribal lands um, that they control is complex. But needless to say, there's, there's reservation lands, there's lands that tribes own that um, don't fall within the reservation border, but maybe they were in their ancestral territories. Those are tribally controlled lands. Typically the reservations, we, we talk about Indian country. That's, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about where tribes have jurisdiction over the land. Um, and that's, that's a major component of tribal natural resource management. We have 573, I believe, is the count uh, of federally recognized tribes in the United States, um, tribes and Alaska Natives uh, corporations. That's a lot. About 300 of them have for significant forest lands that they're managing, totaling about 18 million acres. So when you compare that um, to other large land management agencies, that's a, that's a good chunk. That's a lot of land. Um, each one of those tribes is managing that for their own goals and objectives. So it's important to see that as part of tribal natural resource management. Um, then we have all the public lands, which I mentioned transferred to the United States and, and, um, and, and out of tribal control. 
Right. And, and those lands, too, many of them have explicit treaty rights on them. That tr- is particularly here. We're in the we're in the lake states. Right. Um, the tribes signed treaties with the federal government, ceding land, but retaining rights to use that land for things like hunting, fishing, um, gathering. And things like harvesting timber. These, these are things that were explicitly um, not ceded uh, in those treaties. And so the tribes have rights to use them now. And so if you're working for a federal agency, for example, you're working on Indian land, basically needing to work with those tribes to make sure that those treaty rights are respected um, and implemented uh, according to what the tribes want. Uh, and so that's that's another. So you can start adding that up. We have 18 million acres of tribal land and reservations, 18 million acres of forest. Add on the public domain federally. That's huge. That's, you know, you look at a map of out west. And I always show this. I, I show the map of the United States and the federal lands. And the federal ownership out west is massive. Yes, it is. And all of those lands, all of those federal agencies that manage those lands have a legal and I would add moral and ethical responsibility to work with tribes on that management. So now we're talking basically most of the natural resource managed in the United States needs to work with tribes. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about tribal natural resource management. Um, yeah. And one of, one of the things that I was so um, struck by in Dr. Bauerkemper's talk was this idea, and you just referred to it, it was very much embedded in what you just said, that um, it's not the tribes have special rights or the tribes have been given the right to, say, hunt or gather or use public lands in other ways. It's that they've always had those. And, um, and although they gave up some of the rights uh, to, to use the land in certain ways uh, in those treaties, they retained many others. And so, as you said, it, it's not that somebody, some benevolent um, official gave those rights to tribal peoples. It's that they have always had them um, for as long as they've been here and since long before European-American settlers arrived. That's it's, a, it's great a different, point. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. The, the, the United States that we know today would not be the same if we didn't have those seated, seated lands from the tribes. And you have to remember that at the time that tribes were signing the treaties, um, they were, there was a lot of coercion. There was a lot of, um, you can read books on um, uh, sort of the, the, the tactics that were used to get tribes to sign these treaties. But in the end, the tribes um, were having treaties with the United States because they were their own countries, essentially. They were their own sovereign entities governing their own lands, their own peoples, their own natural resources. Right. And the United States recognized that in signing those treaties. And so those treaties that our U.S. Constitution calls the supreme law of the land um, are in full effect today. And there's, there's complicated case law around these things, complicated law. American Indian law is federal Indian law is some of the most complicated law um, out there, as I've been told by lawyers. Um, but those, it's clear that, that, those treaties, that sovereignty comes, predate, you know, predates the United States. And that's the reason for them. The tribes didn't get sovereignty from the federal government. The tribes are sovereign, just like Canada is sovereign, just like Mexico is sovereign. And right. when our government works with Canada or Mexico, that's kind of the mindset you have to have when you think about tribal sovereignty. This, these are different countries with their own sovereign control over their territories and peoples. 
So Mike, as I said, the, the main topic of our conversation is tribal models of sustainability. And sustainability can be defined in a number of different ways. Uh, some ways relate to ensuring a, a, a flow of resources now and into the future, using our resources in ways that uh, don't interfere with the ability of future generations to use those resources as they may um, choose to. Um, what can you tell us about indigenous models of sustainability? How do those definitions align with or differ from the ways that uh, tribal people or indigenous people might understand the concept of sustainability? I think, you know, from my early education, when I was a master's student, thinking about tribal understanding of, of natural resources, I was quickly bombarded, and, and actually even as an undergrad, with, with this idea that there's a three-legged stool of sustainability. Right. right. We have environmental, we have economic, and we have social. That sounds good, right? There's, there, those, are, those are important components of, of sustainability. Oftentimes, definitions talk about future generations, right? And, but, but when you think about that and you would try to operationalize those three giant categories, it's really hard. What is sociology? I mean, the subfields within this idea of environment or economics, I guess, is a little bit more specific. But the social, the environmental, those are huge. Those are, there's so many things within those that makes, it boggles the mind. And I think what happens when we operationalize those three things, like through the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, we end up focusing a lot on the stuff we know. And the stuff we study in the university. So we have lots of ecology, lots of biology, maybe a little bit less so, but we have economics in there. But the people side, we don't have as much. We have some, but not as much. But it really doesn't, doesn't get to the core of what sustainability is. Now, if you approach that from a tribal perspective, what is sustainability? There's all, um, again, there's generations worth of understandings of what that means. And it goes beyond these three things in the three-legged stool. Um, I think on one level and a very important level, um, one that I haven't engaged with myself very much, but many scholars are engaging with this, is language. What are the tribal languages and how do they understand this thing that in the Western world we call sustainability? Oftentimes we hear tribes saying relationships and land and our relationships with each other and relationships with the land form the basis for our sustainability as humans, as other than humans. Um, and that's, that's, that's in many of our languages. We have words for, you know, all my relations or my relatives. In my tribe, they say, then we it's, it's a concept that's basically coming through these languages that have um, developed over, again, many generations on this land itself. And so understanding those deep relationships between ourselves and the animals and the plants and the fish and the air, et cetera, um, that's sustainability. That has to be the core of the sustainability. Other, other indigenous communities are coming up with um, different models to, to think about what is sustainable and how to 
again, operationalize? How do you put this stuff into practice so we can get beyond this broad category of social, particularly because that's such an important concept, human beings as part of the ecosystem in many indigenous communities? So there's uh, there's a Maori scholar that, that um, I, I've worked with a little bit uh, at my time at the College of Menominee Nation, and he he's he had a sustainability model where he starts thinking about um, in their language apparently this Maori and I'm not a Maori scholar so I'm, uh, this is just a limited understanding I had from what he would what he taught us but basically if you're enhancing this thing that is our relationship that is our common home that is our um, um, that that is this relationship that we have with creation if you're enhancing that that's positive for sustainability and if you're damaging it. That's a negative. And so he's a, he was an engineer and he kind of sets up this, this grid. Like, are you enhancing this or are you detracting from it? And that helps guide you. You can go into any project and say, if I put a sidewalk here, and I'm, am I enhancing our relationship together, our relationship to creation, or am I detracting from it? If I bust the kids to another school district, what does that do to sustainability? You know, if I harvest in this manner for these goals, how does that impact sustainability? And that's kind of nice. That's a real simple one. You can add numbers to it. Maybe it enhances it plus two or minus one, right? You can start playing with it like that. Yeah, it's important to, to figure out how these things work. Right. Another one that I've worked with is with the College of Menominee Nation themselves. And they've developed a model of sustainability to help kind of not, not only guide them into the future, but to understand how that tribe has been able to manage their resources sustainably over time. So the Menominee have managed their forests for timber since the mid 1800s when the reservation was established, sustainably managed for timber, cutting and milling trees into lumber since the 1850s. They've been doing this consistently on the same piece of land that is the reservation. And how big is the reservation? 230 some thousand acres. And they've been harvesting, they've been cutting those trees and milling them into lumber in a manner that has, if you tally up all the volume that they've taken off over those years, it equals about two and a half or more times as if you would have just clear cut it once. So two and a half times the volume than, than a, an initial clear cut. And today they've got higher quality and more volume than when they started. That's just yeah, amazing. I've not visited the reservation. I hope to do that sometime soon, uh, but they are really, I think, widely seen as a model. You know, so 100, 150, 170 years, you know, that's, that's um, depending on how you view our rotation, whether it's an economic rotation or a biological, that, you know, that's, that's not that long. And, and they have, uh, from the, the pictures I've seen and the things that I've heard from people like you, you know, big, um, healthy, productive white pine and a number of other species as well. And so clearly they have um, developed a, a model that um, at, at least uh, meets the sort of um, classic Western definitions of sustainability with respect to the three legs of the stool that you mentioned earlier. Definitely. Um, but, and I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I'm sure you were not done. So tell us more about about the College of Menominee Nation model of sustainability. I think it's, I think you were saying it's more than just those three. Yeah, so the, the college 
kind of came together to, to because it's a college institute of higher education to figure out a theoretical framework to understand this history. Why, you know, why is Menominee like this? And, you know, the, the, the adjacent landowner is different. In this case, the adjacent landowner is the National Forest. Um, and so they came up with it, community meetings and meetings amongst themselves. They came up with a, a model that essentially discusses sustainability in terms of six dynamic and interactive dimensions. Each one of those dimensions, unlike the three-legged stool, uh, includes human beings as part of it. So humans are infused within this entire model, which I think there, right, right off the bat, we see um, that's, that's a difference in how indigenous communities can think about what is sustainable and what is the environment itself. So these six model, these six dimensions of sustainability instead of the three-legged stool has three dimensions. So the six are land and sovereignty is one. That is basically the tribes. We talked about sovereignty in the beginning. Basically, the tribe's ability or the community's ability to control the land base, make decisions for that land uh, and the people. Uh, natural environment is another dimension that includes human beings, like I mentioned. Again, that's very different than that three-legged stool where humans are kind of sociology and economics, right? Um, but no, we're part of the environment. We're, what we do has an impact on that. Um, and so natural environment is part of the sustainability that includes humans. Another one is institutions. Think about institutions to be um, traditional things like our clan structures, for example, but also our institutions of higher education. Uh, like the University of Minnesota or the College of Menominee Nation, institutions like tribal governments and modern forestry organizations. Um, so that's that's another part of the uh, six dimensions of sustainability in this model. Technology is another one. Again, I like to think about technology as, you know, how do you make a birch bark canoe? That's technology. Sure. How do you make a cross stick? All the way to our modern GIS systems that are – you know, the basis for our forest management today and tribal forest management. Um, so kind of like institutions, we have traditional things within technology as well as sort of modern contemporary. And those things sit equally together. Um, another, uh, the, the, the next dimension of sustainability in this model is economy. And I think about that one kind of with scale as well, where you have household economy, you have community economy, regional, national, global economies, and how those things all fit together. Um, and then finally, the last piece of the Sustainable Development Institute's model is um, a dimension that's called human perception, activity, and behavior. Hmm. So that's, why do I act as an individual? Why do I see you know, something and think one thing? Or why do I recycle? Why don't I recycle? Why do I think... Uh, Shelter would harvest for white pine is a great idea. Why do I, you know, not think that? You know, those are the individual sort of perception, activity, and behaviors. But then there's also collective. I think, again, there's a scale thing here. How do we as a community look at things like recycling or forest management or forest products? And then how do we act and behave um, based on those sort of values and those understandings of the world? So this model that the College of Menominee Nation came up with, with these six interactive dimensions, says that these things are all interactive, they're all dynamic, and there's tensions within and among them. And that the whole goal of sustainability, or I should say that sustainability is really just a process of recognizing all those tensions and trying to relieve them or balance them. 
understanding all the time that new tensions will arise as you do that and old tensions might come back. So for example, if I look at a forest and somebody um, has done a shelter wood for white pine and I think my human perception is that's a bad thing. There's a tension there between the natural environment and what we need to do to manage white pine and regenerate those beautiful trees that you mentioned um, and grow them for 100, 150 years. Um, there's a tension there. So recognizing that tension, then trying to figure out how do we re- relieve that tension is really the goal or the process of sustainability. It never ends. Um, we can use that model then to kind of think about, well, how do we change that perception? You know, we might go to the institutions, the schools, and say, hey, um, let's really try to dig in with our students and talk about ecology, forest management, and how those things kind of play off each other. Why do the foresters cut and leave a lot of sunlight coming in? Well, why do they uh, kind of uh, grind or ankle chain the, the soil so that white pine can regenerate naturally? You know, why are they doing that? And how does that relate to ecology? It's going back to this model of sustainability and trying to, again, identify and relieve those tensions. Well, it's a pretty cool thing. It's dynamic. And it's something that whenever I talk, you know, give talks on that topic, I feel like there's a great discussion that people have. People get energized, excitement. I can hear the, right. yeah, I can hear the noise kind of rise up in the room. And I'll tell you, Eli, that's a lot different than when I give talks about NEPA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. There's some, some sounds of snoring. Yeah, a little bit, little bit of a different model. There's, there's a few nerds like myself who really get into it, but aside from that, not so much. And, and that's because this, it, that three-legged stool is really hard to operationalize and think about, well, what do, what do we do? How do we use it? Whereas this, this thing from the, this model from the College of Menominee Nation seems like you can really understand the system that you're working with and then use it to say, okay, we've got these six things and we want a solution. How do we go for it? But the final thing on that model, though, that's really uh, you know, a core part of it is actually a seventh piece. And so if we think sustainability is a process of recognizing and relieving the tension among these six dimensions, um, how do you do that? And this is where Menominee culture and identity comes into play. The center of that model, the thing that the community uses to basically balance and make decisions uh, in the in the theoretical model, we say Menominee autochthony. That's a big word that we don't use very much in English. Um, but basically it means in ex- the tide of the land, that the Menominee people are from this land that they're managing, that they're living on, that they are a part of that land. And so the, any decision, this goes back kind of that Maori thing, any decision that's going to negatively impact that or any way to those tensions are starting to diminish that Menominee tie to the land, any decision that might do that, you know, move somewhere else, that would be a decision that would, you know, that happened sure. in my tribe, but that would, that would decrease that tie to the land. You know, th- that model shows w- using that as a way to make decisions has been really important for sustainability. And so it's incumbent upon us, I think, in our various communities, this is where the model is sort of universal. What are our cultural values? What are our values that tie us um, to sustainability and help us make decisions that are sustainable according to our own understandings of sustainability for the long term? So if my culture values water, how does 
any decision or relieving these tensions or how do the tensions impact negatively or positively impact water? We have to recognize that, you know, it might be, it might be something else. It might be a specific place on the landscape that, that I've been going to. Um, maybe there's a camping spot that, that my family likes to go to over time. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to balance decisions around that, you know, maintaining that, that, that relationship with that land. And so this model helps us do that from things as little to ourselves to, to global issues. It's pretty, it's pretty neat. It, it sure is. It, it, it's, it's interesting, Mike. I'm struck as I listen to you describing this model. You know, when, when you talk about the three-legged stool, uh, when I talk about definitions, sort of traditional definitions of sustainability, I, I'm not sure I've thought about this before, but I, it, those seem to apply to, uh, to a narrower set of decisions. So I, I think of applying that three-legged stool model of sustainability to uh, to maybe not a single timber harvest, but to timber harvesting on a particular, um, you know, large ownership or, you know, a, a general approach to timber harvesting, as an example. Is this approach to timber harvesting sustainable? You're not talking about how the Menominee Nation or Menominee people would would think about a, a timber harvest. It sounds to me like you're talking about th- this model of sustainability is being applied not just to a particular decision about whether or how to harvest timber, but a, a much, much broader um, uh, understanding of, of how the Menominee Nation and, and the people within it relate to the broader world. And that might include providing for their needs, including harvesting timber, but um, am I am I hearing that right? It, it, this this model of sustainability sounds like it goes way beyond decisions about timber harvesting to a to a, almost a worldview. Is, is that accurate? I think it's accurate, but also recognizing that it does include timber sales, right? I, sure, it, it can scale. So I try, and you know, we just have a few minutes here, but I, I encourage people to go, you know, look up the paper that we wrote about it. Um, but it, it can include the timber sale. And it goes back to, is this timber sale enhancing that tie to the land or is it detracting from it? Um, but you're right. It's because of that holistic whole uh, worldview that humans are part of the system 100%. We cannot separate ourselves from this ecological system. Right. Um, and that the other sp- kind of specific thing in this model, you know, you might find pieces of, of these different dimensions in other places. But this whole idea of sovereignty is really important. And, and it came up in the beginning of our talk right now. And it's it, basically it's the theme that's run through most of the research and work that I do. This idea that tribes are sovereign. And that's extremely important um, for sustainability. And so recognizing that, learning about that, understanding what that actually means if you're a federal employee, if you're a state employee, if you're a private company employee or if you're a tribal natural resource employee, right? Understanding that sovereignty is going to foster sustainability uh, from the tribal perspective. So tribal natural resource management will be fostered uh, by recognizing sovereignty and then not just recognizing it, but but using it or listening to the tribes and, and letting them use it um, to enact their own goals and objectives for resource management. That's interesting. You went there, Mike. The, the next question I had just scratched down a minute ago is how is how can foresters not working on tribal lands 
uh, learn from these models or, or integrate this way of thinking? So, so what should, what should a, a, a forester working on a national forest or on state lands, um, you know, what, what might they do to, to integrate this way of thinking into their management decisions? There, one is to just kind of think through this model and kind of create a narrative in your head. Sketch out each one of those six dimensions for whatever project or decision you're trying to make. Think about the tensions. Think about how you would balance the tensions and what values go into that. So anyone can do that for anything. That's, that's great. The other advice, piece of advice I give to people working on um, public lands, but people in general, oh, learn where the lands you're standing on come from. What, what tribe seeded that land? Is it seeded? When did that happen? What are the modern sort of, the, the treaties don't necessarily have the modern names of all of our tribes. It might say Potawatomi, for example. We have a multi, number of Potawatomi tribes um, that are federally recognized. So like, what are those tribes? Who are the ones that signed these treaties? What is the land? Think about the controversies on the land. What are some of the controversies? If I'm a new person in the U.S. Forest Service and show up at a ranger district, I want to know what are the controversies around the lands that I'm managing. Was this previously tribal reservation land? Is it ceded territory? Is it unceded territory? And what does that mean for our management? Who from our organization has been working with tribes? What are the issues that the tribes are telling us that they want us to work on? All those are kind of basic questions that if I walk into a planning meeting, I'll bring back NEPA, some sort of planning meeting with tribes on NEPA or even a public meeting on NEPA, I need to know all of that history and background in order to basically just start with a project. And if I don't, I'm doing a disservice to the tribes, but I'm also doing a disservice to the agency because those are the kind of things that um, can can really negatively impact relationships and natural resource management. So you you talked, Mike, about acknowledging about about learning and understanding the history of the land that you're working on, and 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 the ways that 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 is important to, you know, your ability to make good decisions on that land. One of the things we hear about, uh, especially recently, we hear more about is land acknowledgements. And when we hear people um, uh, talking about the, you know, acknowledging uh, the, the land that we're on, as an example, I, I'm talking to you now from the Cloquet Forestry Center. We are within the boundaries of the Fond du Lac Reservation. The university currently owns this land, uh, but we hear more and, and more, um, uh, you know, about the need to recognize the troubled history. As you said, you mentioned coercion, and, and, and it's not a, a pretty history uh, of, of land ownership um, uh, change from tribes to the current owners. Um, how, how do you think about land acknowledgments in the, in the context of the, the broader conversation we're having here and in the context of our understanding of uh, where we are today and where we came from and, and, and how that influences decisions we might make on the land. Land acknowledgements are becoming more and more common in the United States. Um, they're, they're really common if you go to other countries like Canada or New Zealand. 
And they're also really common, and they have been for a long time, if you go to any tribal meetings, intertribal meetings in particular. So I'm, I've been a part and worked with the Intertribal Timber Council, which is a national organization that works on behalf of Indian um, forestry uh, across the U.S. And, you know, every meeting is at a different reservation. Every year we have an annual meeting. And we are always welcomed by and honor uh, essentially the tribes that are hosting everybody. The meeting starts off with that tribal welcome. That's a land mm-hmm. acknowledgement. That's a form of saying uh, we acknowledge that we're on whoever reservation, Menominee Reservation, um, Tanana Chiefs up in Alaska. Wh- wherever we are, we recognize that we're on that tribal land and act accordingly. Um, and that's 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 just how uh, tribes work. That's how we've always done things. We acknowledge that. And here in the U.S., we start we've started to see uh, at our universities uh, these land acknowledgments. Where does the land come from? Whose land are we on? Those kind of questions that I asked um, or I offered up for people to think about if you're working on public lands. Um, universities are the same. We we need to think about that. Uh, very quickly, however. Here in the U.S., we entered sort of into this, as institutions entered into this land acknowledgement um, discussion at a time where our indigenous people um, have talked throughout the world and are demanding action, not just acknowledgement. And that's taking, you know, we're not all there as institutions to even acknowledge the land that we're on, but we are, we, we recognize that we need to do more than just acknowledge, oh, this is Dakota territory that the University of Minnesota is on, or this is Ojibwe from the Fond du Lac. Um, we need to do something about it. And part of the acknowledgement is not just saying, yes, we're on this land, but so what are you going to do about it? You, you know, things like, uh, developing partnerships on the research and education realm, partnerships that address tribal natural resource management issues. That's one way. Another way to act upon that is to um, start thinking about co-management, right? Or even giving the land back for tribal management. There have been proposals over the years for these kind of things on our public lands. And we're at a point where we need to seriously consider like how we implement these land acknowledgements. And I don't know if, if, if you're going to ask a question about this, but the, the report that came out in the High Country News on land-grant institutions. The, yeah, the Land Grab Universities, I think, was the title. That, that report is really illuminating. So I knew that land-grant universities, that grant – was coming from tribal lands. I knew that. I don't know if everyone recognizes that, but I certainly did as a native scholar. Um, but I didn't know the details of it. And when you look down at all the all the universities, they're not only taking land from the immediate tribes. They're like they're getting land, um, essentially quote unquote, granted to them from across the country. And our Dakota tribes here um, really kind of faced had a lot of land because that was more recent. Those exchanges, like I said, my tribe was removed in the 1830s, right? A little bit later is when we started having these, these 
land grant university set up. Um, so those lands that were going through either treaty ceded lands or um, essentially coercion or even uh, theft in, in many cases, I think tribes would argue, um, land goes to the university and we have those in our endowments. We have land, pieces of land that we still physically own. We meaning land grant universities across the country. So what does that mean? And how do you actually put the land acknowledgement into practice? I'll offer a few ideas. Funding students, native students, to go to these universities. Making sure that they have what they need to be successful. Incorporating indigenous ideas into the academic arena. I think it's becoming more and more accepted that with natural resource management, tribal knowledge is important. Well, let's figure out how to get our universities to sort of pivot and and have that as part of our own learning and education. So that means funding research, funding faculty. I already mentioned funding students, but that all plays together. Um, Working directly with the tribes, with, with solving some of the problems that they might have. And forming partnerships that are really based on mutual respect, understanding, Um, and respecting that tribal sovereignty. So it's not the university that's overseeing everything. It's a real partnership. Those things, you know, putting real money into programming, into students, into faculty, um, that will go a long way to redress the issue of basically these universities um, sitting on a lot of Indian land and money to to this day. I I recommend everybody reads that uh, article. It's it's uh, incredible. And they also have a database that you can go and kind of click through, name your university, and then it shows the lands and the tribes that that, that land came from. And as you say, Mike, it's, it's really very striking. I, I, um, I, again, the article is called The Land Grab University, published very recently, uh, June 2020, uh, in High Country News. And I, I knew, you know, if you had asked me, uh, like you said a moment ago, if you had asked me, okay, Eli, where did... Where did um, the, the land grant, you know, who owned the, the land that was granted to the land grant universities in order to, to uh, fund and, and um, enable the establishment of what I think of as these really great institutions. I mean, I've worked for the land, in the land grant university system for 20 years. I take great pride in, in the mission, um, of, you know, the, the teaching, research, and extension mission, the, the engagement focus, the, the focus on um, all of the things that the land grant universities do. And if you had asked me, well, where did that land come from? I would have thought for a minute, and I, I wouldn't have taken too long to get back to, well, of course, it was taken from the tribes. But the article really put that much more front and center in my mind. And, and as you said, it, it, it really uh, drove home some of the complexities in terms of um, uh, just, just where that land was. So Cornell University, the New York State, New York's land grant university, um, was granted land in Wisconsin, was granted land really, I want to say all over the country, that, that's not entirely accurate, but, but lands well outside of New York. Um, and I was, I was struck, I mean, I knew that about Cornell, although maybe not the extent or the distribution of that land. Another thing that really struck me, and I, you know, this podcast is produced in Minnesota. You and I both work for the University of Minnesota. I had not realized how, what a, what a very important role 
um, min- lands in Minnesota that were taken from Minnesota tribes um, played in the establishment of the land grant university system nationwide. And I, I don't want to say things that are inaccurate. So I, I you know, I, I won't say what, how many different universities benefited from land grants within Minnesota. Cause I just don't remember that number, but it was far, far more than I had thought and well beyond the university of Minnesota. You know, we, many of us, if we don't think about this very much, you, you might think, oh, the University of Minnesota was granted land. And, well, sure, they, they must have been granted land in Minnesota to, you know, to, to further the development of the university. Um, but many, many universities quite distant from Minnesota were also granted land from Minnesota. And the history of the acquisition of that land is, um, is, is not what we might want to think of it. You know, it's, it's um, again, it's, it's easy to forget or to fail to um, uh, to, to, to invest the time to learn, but it, it's, um, it, it's not a good history. And it, it, it makes me think just a little bit differently about the land grant mission and my role in it and, and how, you know, how that all came to be. And, and as you've said throughout this conversation, you know, that deeper understanding of our history, you, you've talked about this in a little bit of a different context, but that deeper understanding of our collective history really is important as we think about how to move forward together and in a manner that, um, you know, is consistent with, um, with, with a broad definition of sustainability. I think you're trying to wrap us up here, but let me, let me add a few observations on this as well. You know, it, this whole idea that our university systems have uh, basically been established through um, tribal resources, what we right. see today, and and then you start looking at some of the disparities in educational outcomes. Right. How many Native students do we have at Minnesota, Wisconsin? You name the land-grant universities, and not very many. How many faculty and staff do we have? Not very many. Why is that? And, again, with the eye towards action, what can we do about it now that we know that this is the case? And the other thing I think about is – that this is a contemporary issue. Right. This is not a thing that happened in the past. This isn't, you know, my grandpa got or my great, great, great grandpa got a homestead and, and I really have nothing to do with that anymore. That's not the case here. This is actual endowments that universities have, actual land that they still manage and own. So this, rather than some sort of past grievance that, that is really difficult to address. And we as a country have a lot of those. This one's ready, ready. And every day that passes that it's not dealt with is another day that we're having an injustice today. Uh, and, and I don't want to say it's easy to solve, but it's something that's contemporary that really is continuing every single day. And it's easy to see because of this report. X amount of dollars in endowment comes from this X amount of acres. They're still there. Yeah. And, the, and you're right. They're still there. The land is still there. Much of the land is no longer owned by the university, but or by, I don't, I'm not talking just about Minnesota, but about yeah. the, uh, by, by the land grant universities. But uh, those assets have been growing in value and those assets certainly are still owned by the universities. And so they're, you're right. It is very much a contemporary issue. So, Mike, it seems like we're on a, a path here. Maybe we're moving a lot more slowly than 
we could be, but we're, we're on a path of, of deepening our understanding of, you know, through land acknowledgements and, and, a, and a stronger understanding of, of how we got to where we are today. Um, you know, we're, we're at least uh, on, on that path. When you look to the future, um, what do you, what, what gives you hope or, or what, what moves you to action in, in this realm? I'm an eternal optimist and I see so much opportunity here. Now that we understand the importance of tribal natural resource management, now that we understand tribal sovereignty, now that we understand where money and land to establish our universities comes from and our public lands, um, we have the opportunity to transform sustainability to help all of us move forward in a sustainable manner. How do we do that? Continue building these strong partnerships with our tribal communities. Um, can, our universities, like the University of Minnesota, I have a lot of uh, hope for the for the direction it's going, that we're all going together. One, the president of the university has really, in a very big way, signaled that she wants to work with tribes as sovereign nations and respect that tribal sovereignty. She's hired a um, senior uh liaison for tribal uh, nations. So there's a senior person that's in charge of the whole University of Minnesota system uh, in terms of tribal relations, building those uh, avenues of discussion, understanding what we need to do as a university to move forward. That's a huge step in the right direction. We've got the forestry department here and College of uh, Food, Agriculture, uh, Natural Resource Sciences, CFANS. They hired me. Right. And essentially, my job is to set up a tribal natural resource management program so that we're educating tribal members, but also everyone that comes through the program on these issues so that natural resources will be managed uh, sustainably into the future. And then along those partnership lines in terms of our actual natural resource management, you know, we're in a time where we don't have a lot of budget for anything. Federal agencies don't. State agencies don't. Universities don't. um, Tribes don't. But together is together we do. We can pool sort of our knowledge and resources to confront all of these problems that we're seeing with natural resource management, be it climate change or invasive species or wildfires that are uncontrollable. Uh, we can do that together. And with a collective vision, we, we will get to a place where I don't think right now we really even understand where that where that is. But defining that defining that sustainability together is 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 the first step to building those partnerships for a sustainable future. So I'm extremely optimistic about where this is all going. We're seeing a proliferation of natural resource management and tribes across the land-grant universities and others. Our tribal colleges are strong, educating natural resource professionals. So I'm, I'm optimistic. And the final thing that makes me optimistic is, are the, the children that are coming up, that are wanting to learn about these things that are wanting to put in their culture and their values and understand other people's cultures and values as we move forward to, to, to develop the next cohort, the next generation of natural resource professionals. I'm extremely excited about this. So thanks for the opportunity to uh, talk to you today. Well, Mike, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to, to talk with us. It's been a good conversation. I appreciate it. We will link to the two papers that you mentioned, the, uh, the paper outlining the Menominee Nation uh, model of sustainability that you described for us, and also, uh, as I said earlier, the uh, High Country News Land Grab University article. 
Uh, so Mike, thanks for being part of Camp 8. Thanks, miigwech. Well, Kyle, I really enjoyed that conversation with Mike. Uh, he's got a long history and a, and a, and a great perspective on, um, on indigenous models of sustainability. I thought the conversation about land acknowledgements was interesting. I think there's just a lot there if we kind of um, step back a little bit from our automatic ways of thinking and, and, and the things we think we know and try to open ourselves up to those different perspectives. I, I think there's really a lot there to, uh, to inform our work. What stuck with you mm-hmm. from the conversation? Well, you brought up one of them is that the um, the land-grant universities piece is something I hadn't really been that aware of until I was made aware of the High Country News article. And there's a New York Times article as well that um, talks about land-grant universities and our past with indigenous um, indigenous-owned land. And uh, so that was interesting to hear more about that from Mike's perspective. I really appreciated that you... Uh, worked with him to, or talked with him about the mo- different models of sustainability, because that's a um, pretty ephemeral concept uh, that can just kind of exist in um, in our minds. And so, seeing it, I, I, I find it very helpful to see those packaged down into more approachable uh, formats, especially the, the Co- College of Menominee Nations uh, sustainability model um, is something that's influenced me in the past. So it was nice to get reminded of that. Um, and I also really appreciate, this is one of my biases that I've been trying to, I've been changing my worldview, so to speak, of making sure I think of myself and other humans as a part of nature. I think when we separate ourselves from nature, it's much, much easier to um, extractively harvest or potentially do things to the land that are uh, not, that are unsustainable and potentially extractive and negative for uh, future generations, not only future human generations, but future generations of the of the ecosystems. So I appreciate that the models he presented in, include humans as as part of the system. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, you and I have talked a little bit over the years about creativity and and about and you you've made the point that um, in your experience, um, constraints can really add to creativity, and I think. At least the way I understand that idea, first of all, I really agree with it. And second, it's interesting what you say about the models of sustainability. On the one hand, it seems um, counterproductive in, in one way to take a, a worldview and try to turn it into, trying to reduce it to a model to account for all and the to, parts and, and to pieces. put numbers on it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you heard me chuckle a little bit when he said, yeah, you could, you know, this one might be a plus two and that one a minus one. Uh, and on the other hand, organize, you know, those things can help us organize our thinking. And, you know, people who do models for a living say that every model is wrong. You know, no, no model can capture all of the complexity, all of the randomness and, and the variety of perspectives and all the different things that go into how we see the world and how we understand the world. But by eliminating some of that complexity, they can give us a deeper understanding of how the different parts fit together. And I, I found that that model, um, for me, really made a lot of sense. And, we weren't able to see it um, in the podcast because we couldn't see, you know, this is an audio thing, but in the paper that we've got uh, linked from the podcast page, um, Mike includes in that paper a, a, a figure showing how the different pieces kind of fit together and, and depicting the, the different tensions that he talked about between those pieces. That's another idea that I really liked a lot, you know, recognizing that everything won't always fit together perfectly. We won't always agree. We have to reconcile and deal with the tensions inherent here. 
between the different things that we're doing. Um, and, and the, the paper includes a figure that, that I found really enlightening about how those different pieces fit together. Kyle, any closing thoughts? I'll say thanks to you for interviewing Mike. I think he brings a really important uh, perspective to the forestry community that hasn't always been there. So I always like learning from Mike. And I'll sign off by saying happy Pride, happy 4th of July. Hey, same to you, Kyle. Camp 8 is produced by the Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative and supported by the University of Minnesota College of Food, Agricultural, and Natural Resource Sciences, the University of Minnesota Extension, and the Cloquet Forestry Center. Thanks for tuning in and keep in touch.